Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Good morning, folks. This is Larry Kudlow. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Thanks for listening. Good to be with you, as always. We will be jam-packed today. We have General Jack Keane, economist John Cochran, Congressman Lee Selden, etc., etc. We'll get to money politics. I want to begin with the war in Ukraine. And I want to raise a couple of points at this big NATO meeting. Actually, let me step back one second. There's, We will get a report from General Jack Keane uh, at the half hour. But there is, uh, there is stuff in the news that the Russians are uh, withdrawing from Kiev. Maybe their offense is, offensive is over there. I don't know. We'll see if he can clarify that. But I'm looking at some of the newspaper reports and some of the online reports. So the Ukrainians, the brave and courageous Ukrainians, God bless them, looks like they're fighting hard. Maybe they repelled. Maybe Russia's retreating to the eastern part of Ukraine, where they always had their biggest strength, I guess. So we'll we'll get some clarification. We'll get some news on that. But I want to talk about the NATO meeting itself, with Biden going over to meet with uh, the so-called Western allies. And I want to raise this issue that I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows what exactly Biden wants from this war. In other words, does Biden want the Ukrainians to win the war? Or is Biden willing to settle for a kind of standoff between Russia and the Ukraine and then negotiate peace of some kind? Of course, the Russians can never be trusted ever in the past, and there's no reason to trust them now. But Biden has such a poor strategy that it's hard to know. I mean, he's been ambiguous. He's been incoherent, bewildering. Uh, I mean, I, he, if you look at some of the things he talked about in his press conference and then later he was in Poland yesterday, I mean, he actually, he was he was meeting with some troops. He was having lunch with some troops. I guess he was having pizza with some troops. And he starts going on about how, well, when you go over there, you're going to see, when you're there, you're going to see women, young people standing in the middle in the front of a damn tank saying, I'm not leaving. I mean, is, was he telegraphing that American troops were going in? I don't think he he meant to. I mean, his people in the White House immediately uh, jumped on that and said, no, no, that's, that's not what he meant. Uh, so <laughs> it's hard to know. I mean, he just seems so incoherent. That's such a problem with him. Uh, are we sending troops into Ukraine? No, no, we're not. They... They motorcycled full speed to run that one back later on. And even in the issue of deterrence, you know, he here he goes again, saying at his news conference in Brussels, uh, he denied that sanctions would deter the Russian invasion. 
All right. So, so you, then you have to ask this: So, then why are we putting on sanctions? And then later, that was denied that he's meant that. And if you go back and you look at his his national security advisor, and you look at his um, Secretary of State Blinken, they say they quoted that the purpose of the sanctions was to prevent war. So it's like who's on first, what's on second, the old Abbott and Costello routine. I mean, it's really hard to figure out what exactly Biden is trying to tell us. And again, I I think there's an issue here that he doesn't want the Ukrainians to win. There's no Reagan-esque, you know, Ronald Reagan said about the old Soviet communists, we win, they lose. You remember that? And he talked about... um, the evil empire, tear down this wall. I remember Reagan's radio broadcast warm-up, I guess it was 1981, you know, he used to have Saturday morning radio broadcasts. And he said, testing, testing, in 15 seconds we'll bomb Moscow. Well, Reagan knew what he was doing. Oh, that was just a joke, ha, ha, ha. But the message was very clear. You don't get any of that with Biden. He never really blasts Putin and he never really says, we win, they'll lose. And you kind of have the sense, again, that he wants a stalemate. He wants a standoff. He's not interested in defeating Russia. And that is really too bad. That is really too bad. And with respect to you know providing weapons uh, for President Zelensky and the Ukrainian armed forces, everything seems to be slow walk. There was no mention at NATO, at least so far as I know. Now, I think he's, Biden may give a speech today. But in any case, um, the whole business about the old Soviet MiG airplanes going from Poland to Ukraine, he didn't settle that. The S-300s that are lodged in Slovakia, Zelensky wants them. It would help in the air battle. Nothing was said about that. Um, Zelensky says, give us 1% of your military, whether it's tanks, whether it's naval ships, whether it's uh, anti-air. Zelensky gave a tough speech, but we we just seem to slow walk everything. And um, that is just most unfortunate. Most, most unfortunate. And uh, I don't know... Again, what exactly Biden wants out of this, but it just strikes me, and you've heard me say this before in prior Saturday broadcasts, that Putin intimidates Biden. I don't know if Putin intimidates everybody in Europe, but he intimidates Biden. And we haven't fixed the carve-outs you know, we still have not put sanctions on, on Russian energy. We still have not put sanctions on all the Russian banks. In fact, the largest Russian bank is not, is not sanctioned. Uh, Senator Toomey talked to me on the TV show, Fox Business TV show, that um, we should be putting secondary sanctions on the Russian banks, You know, which means not only is that Ill- illegal to do business with Russian banks, but other banks can't do business with banks that are doing business with the Russian banks, if you follow that. And not, nothing was discussed about that. 
And it should be. I mean, we should be. Now, there's some talk about uh, putting more natural gas, getting more natural gas into Europe, which is a good idea. LNG, U.S. has the cleanest and the cheapest LNG, uh, liquefied natural gas. It's really a long-term solution. Natural gas is a long-term solution to the entire climate change issue, though the greenies hate all fossil fuels. But it's a task force that has to meet and make decisions. It's going to be months before anything happens. And at home, the Biden administration's policies are still anti-fossil fuels. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, um, decided to reconsider a rule that would have ended any new pipelines. That came out about 10 days ago, two weeks ago. Now they're going to hold it in abeyance, I guess, and take another look at it. But I don't know how that's going to work out. It's not at all clear to me that that's going to solve any problems. The Energy Department has finally, after two years, uh, said okay to permits for some LNG uh, terminals and some LNG drilling operations, but they still have four permits that they're sitting on. The Greenies don't even want any let up whatsoever. So whether there's any changes there remains to be seen. I don't think so. I'm not expecting any. You just can't turn a switch on and off. You know, no drill, then drill. And you can't drill unless you know there's adequate pipelines. And the Greenies have closed a bunch of pipelines. So it's going to be hard to reopen them. And we need new pipelines. And again, FERC and... Interior Department and the Energy Department and the Environment Protection Agency, EPA, all of them are against it, using crazy ideas, social cost of carbon, things of that sort. Doesn't make any sense whatsoever. How are we going to help Europe? I don't know. How are we going to help Ukraine? I don't know. It's very disappointing to me. I don't think we want to win. I don't think there's any Reagan-type attitude for Joe Biden. We win, they lose. I don't see it. I don't hear it. He's never said that. He's been asked, by the way. His people have been asked, do you want to win? And and they just kind of skirt it. They don't give you a direct question. And the brave and courageous Ukrainians and their President Zelensky, who's become an international hero, because of his courage, um, you know, they're fighting, they're fighting their hearts out. You know, you have these great stories about how they're, the refugees are piling into Poland, but many of them come back to fight for their country. And as I say this morning, there are some, I'll call them rumors at the moment, but there is some reporting that Russia may pull out of its offensive against Kiev. The Russian army has done badly. Uh, You can't get a straight answer out of Russia, but observers say 15,000 Russian troops have been killed, going home in body bags. The war is very unpopular in Russia itself, although you, you you can't get a media outlet that still works that would provide any dissent. Putin has stopped any dissent whatsoever. So thank heavens for Ukraine. I mean, Russia, look, they will do whatever they want to do unless they are stopped. They are gunning to break up NATO. 
They are gunning to break up the European Union. They are gunning to prevent any spread of a market economy. And Ukraine's developing democracy and developing market economy is something the Russians can't take. That's what this is about in large measure. And I want to also raise here at the beginning of the show, uh, Putin, I mean, talk about Putin. Putin is a war criminal. Biden doesn't call him a war criminal. Biden referred to him as brutish in his speech. Well, brutish, I don't know what brutish means. He's a war criminal. He and Russia have committed wars against humanity. They are bombing civilian buildings throughout Ukraine, killing men, women, children, hospitals, showing no mercy, violating international rules of engagement. A war criminal. I don't know why Biden doesn't call him a war criminal when he stands up at a press conference in Brussels for a NATO meeting. He is a war criminal. He should be tried at The Hague, the International Court. He should be tried, regardless of the outcome. Putin should be brought to trial as a war criminal. Now, one other point I want to make. We, the United States and NATO, have sanctioned all these oligarchs And we have sanctioned Vladimir Putin. We have sanctioned him. And that means he can't uh, travel out of his country. It also means that his assets can be seized. Taken. We can take his assets. If we can find them, we can take them. So, Putin has this $700 million luxury yacht. It's moored off the coast of Italy. It's 459 feet long. It's horribly furnished. It's obscenely expensive. The Russian crew members are so fed up with Putin, they've left their jobs. My point is a very simple point here. Seize his luxury yacht. Just take it from him. Will that end the war? No. Will that embarrass Putin in the world stage? Yes. Because... Putin is a crook. He's a kleptomaniac. He has stolen money from Russian people. He's been in power for whatever, 20 or 30 years. How is it that as a public servant for several decades, he has enough money to buy a $700 million yacht? Would you explain that to me? The answer is it's stolen money. He takes money that people say, oh, all energy sales, he gets half of them. One reason the Russian army is so bad is that Putin and the oligarchs steal money from the defense budget. This is a narrative that Biden should push. Putin is a crook. He's a kleptomaniac. He is no better than the worst oligarch. He is stealing money from Russian working folks. He's been doing it for decades. And his big boat, his big dinghy, sitting off the coast of Italy, should be seized, taken. Trump would have done that. Trump would have flown over there and stood on it, maybe given it a new name. That's the kind of thing that Biden should do if he was willing to really take on Vladimir Putin. 
who was a criminal, who was a kleptomaniac, who was corrupt, who has stolen money from the good Russian working people, and he's done it for decades. That's the way they run Russia. Putin and his oligarch friends take his yacht, generate a narrative that in addition to being a war criminal, he is corrupt. He has stolen from the Russian people. While they are in trouble economically, he starts this crazy war and his $700 million boat is moored off of Italy. Really. Joe Biden should stand on his hind legs and act like the leader of the United States and the rest of the free world. And he won't do it. He will not do it. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. I'll be right back after this. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, join us during the week, Fox Business, 4 p.m., 4 to 5, Monday through Friday. Name of the show is Kudlow. And here, you can uh, live stream it all across the country, LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com. Live stream it on the Internet all across the country, throughout the world and the solar system. Um, I want to get in another subject. I mean, we're going to talk about the stock market and we're going to talk about the inflation problem as the show goes on, as we always do. We're going to talk about the energy problem. But one of the big news items, of course, in the past week or so has been uh, Hunter Biden's laptop computer, which was reported on 20 months ago by the New York Post and which all of the major established media opposed and that includes outfits like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and so forth. Nobody could talk about it because it was a Russian plant, disinformation. Well, the great New York Times in paragraph 24 about Hunter Biden's tax problems finally acknowledged that the Hunter Biden laptop lives. It exists. They acknowledge it. So we talked about this a lot on the Fox Business Show and I'm going to raise it here. We'll talk about it later on this show as well. There's $31 million they Hunter Biden got from China, and no one knows exactly how much from shady deals with Ukraine energy. That was the Burisma thing, and also the wife of the mayor of Moscow, or the former mayor of Moscow, the oligarch wife, the richest woman in Russia. Here's the thing. This has to be explored and investigated. Because I want to know, you know, Tony Bobulinski, who 20 months ago talked about the laptop and the business arrangements, and you may recall that he said, well, we're going to set aside 10% for the big guy. The big guy meaning Papa Biden, meaning President Joe Biden. We don't know how much money Joe Biden got. We don't know under what circumstances he got it. We don't know how compromised that has made him as he negotiates with China 
and of course Russia, and of course the middle of the Ukraine war. We don't know any of this stuff. And here's what we do. We don't know if he is still receiving money from these Hunter Biden deals. He could be. I, I don't know that he is, and I don't know that he isn't, but I bet you damn sure the American people would like to know. Polls show routinely that if people knew that the Hunter Biden laptop and all these business deals with Joe Biden, if they knew that before the election, 10% of them would have voted for Donald Trump, which would have given Trump the presidency. This is a big issue. It's a big story. Hats off to the New York Post, Miranda Devine, et al. But I'm just saying we need to investigate and explore this. What did Joe Biden get? How much did he get? And is he still getting it? I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to cover it all Saturday morning, WABC. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Talking about the Ukraine-Russian war, we welcome back General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News senior strategic analyst, also Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. Um, general Keane, good morning, sir. Uh, yeah, good, I wanna, good morning. I just, yes, uh, thank you for coming on, as always, of course. I want to ask you about uh, some news items that uh, Russia seems to be pivoting uh, away from Kiev and back towards the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. Uh, their losses have been so great around Kiev. Is is this a significant... First of all, is it true in your judgment? And is this a significant change? No, I mean, uh, we believe it's fictitious because... Uh, it, it, the fact is, is that the main effort has always been to take the capital, to take the major cities, you know, to force the collapse of the entire country. And they they haven't been successful at that. But they told their domestic audience that the reason they were going into Ukraine was because of the genocide that was being committed by the Ukrainian military in the Donbass region and that they were killing innocent civilians. Uh, of course, that was a false story. So what the deputy uh, deputy chief of staff to the general staff is, is, is claiming here, he's really talking to his domestic audience, and he's trying to deal with the fact that they've had significant failure. And, and what he's claiming is they've had significant success. And their operations are, being, are, are voluntarily restricted in other areas because of the success they've had in the Donbass region. So it's false. The success, have they had some success in the Donbass region? True. But they've had complete failure throughout the rest and the remainder of Ukraine, by and large. And that's due to the Ukraine military, and they're not about to admit that. They have never given up going after the major cities and the capital to include where they are today. That is still their main objective they're reinforcing the forces around Kiev. They still want to bring them down and circle the city and, and hammer the city like they're doing with Mariupol. So it, in our judgment, it, it's fictitious. It's designed for the domestic audience. 
So this, so they're not going to let up on Kiev. That's correct. Hmm. It's interesting. All these news reports have it, have it, uh, have it differently. But of course, some of these reports are based on what's coming out of Russia. So one should never really believe what's coming out of Russia. Yeah, I mean, this is a report that that's really being given to the to the Russian people. Hmm. And you know, how do they cope with a month of failure? Is what this is, and and he's created this narrative, you know, for that reason that they really have had success, and uh, and they're accomplishing their objective. Listen, they they're going to have problems here because, you know, their soldiers are starting to come home now who have been killed, mm. and others who have been uh, you know severely wounded and, and and cannot be taken care of uh, here. They have to go back to hospitals in Russia, and and all of that's going to gradually, not quickly, but gradually take its toll in addition to the sanctions. See, there's likely will be some problems at home for Putin, uh, rightfully so and deservedly so. But it'll, it'll also take some time for that to take hold. Um, let me switch to this NATO conference because uh, President uh, Zelensky has had, he's given a couple of tough speeches. It just doesn't appear that President Biden and the other leaders of NATO are giving him the weaponry that he really wants. I, I don't know. It, it doesn't sound like the issue of the old Soviet MiGs has been resolved, that the S-300s have been resolved, uh, more anti-tanks uh, weaponry, more anti-ship weaponry. It, it, I mean, I, I, I kind of thought going into this conference that the NATO countries you know, would reward the Ukrainian bravery and the surprise how well Ukraine has done and how badly Russia has done by bolstering them. I mean, I kind of thought the Western countries would want Ukraine to win and Russia to lose, but I don't have that impression. And a lot of these weapons issues and military assistance overall issues, General Keene, it doesn't seem like the ball's moved in the right direction. No, I agree with that. I mean, I expected a public declaration after the NATO conference, after all, this was an emergency meeting. A month has transpired since the last meeting. The last meeting was pretty close to the beginning of the war. And, and, and at that meeting, the thought was that Russia would likely take Ukraine in three or four days. So whatever we were giving to them at the time was likely more going to be used to deal with an insurgency uh, against an occupying force, Russia. Well, here we are a month later, and and President Zelensky and his military has fought the Russians to a standstill. And it's shocking. And we were sort of expecting a declaration that we're on the same page with uh, President Zelensky. We're going to help him win and get rid of the Russians. That's, find the words to say that. And we thought that's what would come out of that. But it, it really hasn't, and there is no official public statement like that whatsoever, nor is there anything dealing with WMD that uh, Russians have been waving in front of our faces for for over a month, attempting to intimidate us and, and make certain that, that we don't do certain things, particularly in terms of uh, giving Zelensky more combat power. So I found the NATO conference uh, disappointing on both of those levels. Now, look at they're putting 40,000 troops in eastern Ukraine and in eastern Europe, NATO forces. Good thing. They're 
they're doing more sanctions and they're trying to police up the sanctions that they've already put in place. Those are good things. Uh, but they, they, I think they really missed the, the main point of coming together, and that is to help Zelensky win the war. I think in the back of the NATO leader's minds, in the back of Biden's mind, I believe for sure, because I, I've been given some evidence of it that when it comes to President Biden and his team, they want to end the war. They, they want to make a deal. They want this thing to be over. And that's not where Zelensky is. He wants to win the war. Do you have any intel on, on what Biden is saying, what Biden's people are saying regarding a potential peace deal? In terms of the specifics, no. Just that there's pressure on him to, to make a deal. Um, and if he makes a deal at this point with the Russians, it's going to be it would be major territorial loss mm. uh, for him to do that. And I don't see him doing that. I mean, in a sense, we'd be letting Russia off the hook. Maybe I'm putting too much credence in the Ukrainian opposition, but I don't know. This thing's gone so badly for Russia. Uh, you know, all these rumors, there's, there's unrest in, 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 in Russia itself. There's unrest in Moscow. Uh, I know that dissent is never made public, but you read all this stuff, even some of his closest advisors, even some of his closest military advisors don't like what's going on. I hate to see Russia let off the hook. I mean, why don't we just, I mean, honest to goodness, just speaking as a civilian, uh, not, not like yourself as a, as a military expert and former general, but to me, uh, I don't want to let them off the hook. I want, I want to help Ukraine win the war. I mean, I just, I, I want to reward Ukraine. I want to back them 100%. I think Russia's on the run. I think they're on the run in the Ukraine, and I think they're on the run internationally. Putin's made a damn fool of himself, and um, I don't want to let up. No, I totally agree. I mean, and if, if we put our NATO hats on, you're sitting there, 30 countries, Ukraine is pounding the Russians, mm. inflicting significant casualties on them, significant destruction of equipment. And what better deterrence could NATO possibly have than Zelensky and his army? He is crushing the Russian army right in front of our eyes. Mm. There is no way that this military machine that Putin has put together could even conceive of going into a NATO country. I mean, they, they can't deal with Ukraine, much less NATO. Zelensky is accomplishing what NATO wants to accomplish, deterring Russia from mm. ever attacking NATO, at least in the near term, that's for sure. And why? so, so why would they really be behind him and saying, Let's go for the juggler. Let's win this thing. Let's let's crush the Russian army in Ukraine and force their force their eviction. And it's it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, I mean, it's nuanced to be sure. But the 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 silence that they have on that subject, and the silence that they have on what are they going to do about WMD, is deafening. What can they do about WMD biochemical warfare? Well, first of all, declare that it's unacceptable, that you you will not let it stand. You know, that this, there'll be decisive consequences. Uh, all options are on the table. I mean, and certainly uh, if they use WMD, I mean, I believe there should be a military response to something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, in, the Trump administration uh, is a good il illustration of it. The Biden, uh, the Obama administration did not act after 
chemical weapons were used in Syria, uh, President Trump did. I believe the, the, the strike, the first strike after it would, could, should have been stronger and gone after the delivery means at the airfields. Mm. We didn't do that, and they used chemical weapons again, and the second strike was stronger and shut them down. We didn't declare war on Syria. We just did a limited military strike to deal with the fact that they were using chemical weapons. And something like that could be done inside Ukraine. There's plenty of options, Larry. Just you ask what could be done. I'll give you one. Yeah. I mean, we we clearly could uh, go after a, a Russian target inside of inside of Ukraine that may be related to the delivery means, if possible, of chemical weapons. Uh, I, I'm not suggesting we attack Russia in Russia. We attack Russia in Ukraine, mm-hmm. and and do that with uh, cruise missiles delivered from airplanes, and if it's possible also to do some of that from, uh, from ships in the Black Sea or submarines from that area, that, that, I'd leave that up to the Navy in terms of the presence of the Russian ships and what the issues are there. But we could, we could take down uh, targets inside of Ukraine mm-hmm. without ever entering Ukraine airspace. We did the same thing with Syria. We did not enter Syria's airspace. We mm-hmm. we were outside of it. And we could do the very same thing here. A limited attack, but nonetheless powerful enough to get their attention and make certain they understood that we're not going to put up with this. General King, can we take a quick break? Can you stay with us on the other side? I can keep you for another 12 or 14 minutes. I want to sure. talk some more about Putin and his oligarchs and his yacht and what he's stealing from the uh, Russian defense budget. And anyway, we're talking to General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and, of course, Fox News senior strategic analyst. Uh, I'm Larry Kudlow, folks. We'll be right back with the general. Larry Kudlow. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm talking to General Jack Keene. Retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, Fox News senior strategic analyst, and Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. General Kane, there's a really interesting interview in today's Wall Street Journal with a fellow named Bill Browder, who was a British investor. He used to have a fund uh, set up in Russia, and he got into an argument with Russia. Uh, he paid $230 million in taxes and um, wanted to know where that money went. And his investigator, his lawyer, by the way, in this uh, thing was um, Magrinsky. What's his? Uh, right, Sergei Magnitsky, uh, who became a great uh, human rights um, uh, icon and was eventually killed by the Russians. But Browder makes this point that 80% of the budgets of various departments are stolen by the people who run the departments. And that includes the defense budget. And, you know, on the TV show, I raised the issue 
Why is it that we are not, we, the United States government, is not going after Putin's yacht, his boat, his $700 million boat, which is sitting off the coast of Italy, uh, obviously from stolen funds? I mean, Putin is corrupt. He's a kleptomaniac. He's stolen all this money. Uh, people say he just skims off the top every single energy deal possible. He's been a public servant for three decades and he has a $700 million yacht. Some people say he's worth a couple of hundred billion dollars. I mean, that narrative, Putin as crook, corrupt Putin, kleptomaniac Putin, I don't see why we don't push that narrative. It's not just that he's a war criminal, that's bad enough, but look what he's done to his own country, his own working people. Totally agree. And, you know, his political opponents, that was one of the things they did all the time was expose the luxury that Putin was living in was, you know, comparable uh, not to the former Soviet leaders, uh, but comparable to the czars. Mm. And they, they were trying to ex- expose all of that. And he may have one of the largest yachts in the, in the world, certainly, and it's in a foreign country. I don't know why they... Uh, that has not been taken. And yes, I think he he is likely, I mean, when I was, years ago when I had a classified briefing from the CIA on Putin, um, and it's been widely reported since then, you know, he was at that time likely the richest man in the world. Mm. And, uh, and he still is. And I think then the holdings were 50, 60 billion. Now mm. it's, likely, as you suggest, it's more than doubled. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and that, you know, most of the people in Russia, you know, live very modest lives. And they're hardworking, hardy people. And, you know, they they would have difficulty getting their head around something like that, that, that complete ostentatious luxury that, uh, that Putin is, is dealing with. I mean, his his place, um, his doctor is more, which is a vacation home, is more like a palace from mm. what I've been led to believe. And that's what his political opponents were exposing. No, I totally agree with that. I mean, it, it, there should be a, a, a primary focus on Mr. Putin and his wealth. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know what we're waiting for. We have the evidence. Uh, you know, this boat, this, this $700 million dinghy, is sitting off the coast of Italy, and uh, the Russian crew has left. Now, maybe they were all Secret Service agents, I don't know, but they're gone. Uh, The boat's just sitting out there, apparently. It's got some kind of skeletal crew. There are reports that the Italian authorities are trying to track down uh, the ownership. But, you know, you'll go through a million dummy corporations before you figure that out. Everybody knows it's Putin's boat. Heck, if we could seize it and generally, you know, if it turns out we're wrong, we can give it back to him. <laughs> but I think that this is an avenue of attack in all seriousness that we should be making in the United States and the rest of these Western countries. It's not just that he's a war criminal. That's bad enough. He's killing innocent civilians and so forth. But look what he's done to his own people. They just steal everything. And the oligarchs, you know, the oligarch system should be um, exposed, it seems to me. I don't think people realize they just take money, you know, they allocate money to budgets and print the money, and then they just take it. A handful of people who run, you know, it would be like one of our cabinet departments if the, if the head of the department just, you know, took half the budget or more. 
Well, you know, it, it's interesting that we're focusing on this, the, the level of corruption, because one of the things that's starting to come out is people are scratching their head and saying, what, what's the problem with the Russian military? I mean, everybody gave them more credit than what, than what they're delivering, and, and to include our intelligence services, you know, who they work at this full time. And, and I think the corruption here that you're, you're touching on is part of that. They're ripping off the money that goes in to, uh, into, into defense and, and the capabilities and, and the logistic infrastructure is just not there. Uh, that, that should be there to sustain this army uh, in the field and because they've been ripping it off. You know, the, the, the generals today that are in the Russian military are all very rich people hmm. and live uh, a life of luxury. And where do they get that money? Well, they're ripping off the money that's going to defense. Uh, the same thing was happening uh, in, the, uh, in the government in Afghanistan that we were supporting. We, we would give them uh, money to pay for their, to pay for defense and pay their troops. And a, a lot of the leaders were cooking the books in terms of, they, you know, saying this was the head count when it was actually considerably less, but they got the money for the phony head count. And that, that level of corruption, I think, is considerably more sophisticated than what's going on in Russia. And it's one of the reasons, not the main reason, but it's one of the reasons to explain the problems that they're having on the battlefield because there's so much blatant corruption. The money never get, got into the full capabilities that that money was intended to, to pay for. You know, that's what this guy, this British investor who got thrown out of Russia because he complained about his taxes... That's one of the things he said in this interview, that the Russian defense budget has been completely ripped off by the generals and other oligarchs. And he went on to say, I mean, this guy's written a couple books on the subject. He, he's obviously an anti-Putin guy. But he said that, um, that the soldiers have had to sell supplies like gasoline, for example, and other supplies just to carry on. They don't have, you know, they don't... They don't. They're not getting paid by Moscow. They're having to go into business for themselves. So I don't know what, how much of that is uh, responsible for their bad showing or not. But I think it's part of this story, part of a narrative that that people in the West should be discussing. Okay, our government should be talking about this level of corruption. That's all I'm saying. No, I, I totally agree with you. You know, another thing that that's come to light is the Russians. Their primary reason uh, for developing a new system is so they can sell that system and export it and make money from it. Huh. And, and that's what they've done with the S-400 air defense systems with their fighters and other things. Hmm. And they don't have as many of those things in their military as they should have. All right. Because they've been, and, and when they sell it, guess General, who's that money off? Thank you, you know, General they, Jack Keane. Thank you ever so much, sir. We'll talk soon. Back on the TV show this week. General Jack Keane, folks, Fox News Senior Strategic Analyst. I'm Larry Kudlow. Other side of the break, we're going to talk about the whole energy problem here in the U.S. and in Russia and in Europe. I'm Larry Kudlow. Please stay with us. Much, much more to do.
At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. So the NATO meeting seems to have produced, the Biden-NATO meeting with respect to the Russian war in Ukraine, seems to have produced some kind of let-up in the Biden war against fossil fuels, the Biden jihad against fossil fuels, which has stretched across the U.S. government, FERC, Interior Department, Energy Department, EPA, SEC, perhaps even the Federal Reserve. I don't know if I buy that. Uh, I think that they're trying to put some extra LNG exports into Europe. I guess that's a good thing. But um, we had on the Fox Business show uh, Mike Summers, the head of the American Petroleum Institute. They are not convinced that anything's really changed. The American greenies uh, are up in arms against any let-up whatsoever, any new permits that would permit either pipelines or additional drilling. We will have to see how that turns out. But one thing's for sure, uh, the jihad is extended throughout the U.S. government, and I want to bring in my friend John Cochran, uh, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. His great blog is called The Grumpy Economist, and he has written at some length about the SEC climate update. First of all, John, thank you for coming on the show. We appreciate it very much. Always a pleasure to talk to you and your and your great listeners. Well, listen, so we've got the uh, the SEC takes on climate. Um, I had Hester Peirce on the TV show, and she's, she said, we're, we're not the Securities and Environment Commission. We're the Securities... <laughs> great? I know, she's really great. We're the Securities Exchange Commission. And she wrote a really brilliant, lengthy dissent uh, on this. But why don't you walk us through, because, you know, this is the financial clamps on uh, fossil fuels, which, um, which I think really goes beyond... John, you know, it, it may go beyond reason, but it goes beyond their mandate, their legal congressional mandate. They're not here to regulate climate. They're here to regulate investment. Well, they're not even here to regulate investment. <laughs> they're here to uh, to regulate disclosures. Yes. To make sure that their companies don't hide things they're, they're not supposed to be doing. They're not supposed to be telling you where to invest your money. And uh, I think one of the biggest... Uh, Changes is they are telling you where to invest your money and telling companies what they must do with your money, how they must run their operations, and all that sort of thing. It's it's not it's it's more it's a it's a program of financial sanctions. Really, we we are doing to our fossil fuel industry what we are trying to do to the Russians <laughs> uh, to deny them to deny them the access to financial markets to borrow money to 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 be able to develop fossil fuels. It's a whole-of-government plan involving all the financial regulators, and they're doing it because if you try to get that through Congress, us peasants with, with pitchforks will notice and cause a huge, much, a huge amount of trouble about it. So turn off fossil fuels before the alternatives are available and do it through financial regulation. It's a small part of this larger effort that is still ongoing 
despite uh, the Ukraine uh, war telling us loud and clear that what a terrible idea it was. You know, John, one of the issues is, and you just referred to it, and Hester Peirce, the SEC commissioner who descended, referred to it also. And that is, uh, this rule from the SEC essentially kind of tells them how to run their companies. And that's really a giant step uh, away from what the SEC's mission has been. That's exactly right. Um, among other things, so to be a little bit precise, it uh, requires companies to uh, calculate their carbon emissions and the carbon emissions of all their suppliers and the carbon emissions of all their customers and to establish plans about how they're going to reduce their carbon emissions and then, of course, make them legally liable. These are all made-up numbers, but you can tell what it's all about. How are they going to get these? There's no regularly accepted data. There's no, there's no history of empirics here. I mean, SEC supposedly regulates what is disclosed by these companies and for accuracy, okay? Um, you know, credibility, believability. But this has never been done before. And there's, there's no body of literature. There's no body of numbers that would make this real. Well, I think it's a full employment act for uh, consultants and lawyers to uh, come, come in and make up numbers <laughs> that will keep the SEC right. happy, right. and that can uh, establish. And of course, if uh, the numbers that you put down instantly, you're going to get sued in court by a whole bunch of uh, in environmental legal uh, companies. So you have to uh, come up with numbers that will please the SEC. Now there might there might be. A, I'll, I'll try to be a little optimistic. There's, there is one useful thing that can come out of this. There's a lot of greenwashing going on. Companies making pledges about how we're all perfect and wonderful for the environment, the net zero. Well, if you have to write it down and if you can be sued for uh, for lying about it, companies might be a little bit more honest about the things that they tell us in public. But that's my one ray of light in this whole affair for you today. But John, how how do they how do they know? They have no control over what their suppliers do. How do they know? And how do they know what consumers will do? That's the, in other words, this upstream downstream stuff, which appears in other attacks on fossil fuels by other agencies. The whole the whole issue, the social cost of carbon, John. I mean, looking backwards and forwards for centuries, I, I don't understand how anybody could possibly know that. Well, it's hard enough to know your own uh, carbon emissions, right? Uh, and and it guarantees triple counting. <laughs> If uh, I have to uh, disclose my carbon emissions from burning gas and the oil company has to disclose my carbon emissions from selling me the gas, we've already counted it twice. But let's let's get the serious issue is what is the Securities and Exchange Commission doing, commanding companies to make a new calculation of carbon emissions and then disclose it. Companies have no idea. Disclosure is supposed to be about tell us stuff you already know, not make up some new numbers. And where in its job is to protect us, the investor from fraud in financial markets. How in the world is uh, com coming up with phony baloney numbers about carbon emissions protecting us, the investor, from fraud in financial markets? It's just way beyond the idea of, of what you know, you're bending to another use, uh, this whole regulatory apparatus. Trial lawyers are going to love this. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, they're going to love this. And judges are going to hate this, but it's going to. It's well, going to... It's, it's like much of our law. Uh, um, big, loose rules um, are an invitation to come sue and get enormous settlements. 
So we'll see if we even have a lot of trials. And I hope we do. Uh, you know, this, I'm sure, will soon be sued, and it will take its way to the Supreme Court, who will say, what the heck are you doing? Mm. Uh, but that takes uh, 10 years and a lot of mischief along the way, and I think they're happy to go with it. And it's part of a, a larger strategy. It's not just the SEC. Uh, the Fed is going uh, all in for this sort of thing, and we're behind the rest of the world. Europe has already used the legal and regulatory system to stymie their uh, fossil fuels. There's, there's a lot of the reason they're in trouble is there's no fracking in Europe. Uh, they're closing down their nuclear plants for, for exactly these same sorts of reasons. So shouldn't we learn a lesson from that? <laughs> well, you and I sort of think so that these lessons are sitting there lying on the sidewalk, don't we? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, as a matter of fact. I mean, that this is part of the war against fossil fuels. So talk about the war against fossil fuels. What is going to replace fossil fuels in their entirety, John Cochran? Well, <laughs> uh, what should or what is going to? I, I think this plan is nothing. <laughs> the plan is in Europe right now. They're turning off. Uh, they're turning off their Russian fossil fuels and they're turning on the coal. Uh, now, in fact, the United States has led the world in carbon reductions, and mm-hmm. the reason is because we allowed fracking uh, over sort of the dead bodies of the environmental regulators, and that produced a lot of natural gas, which emits a lot less carbon than coal. In the long run, it's got to be uh, nuclear. That's the only way it's going to go. Uh, solar, wind, all that stuff can help. Um, there's lots of, lots of clean supplies of energy, but you can't do it by turning off the fossil fuels before those things are available. That's the freeze in the dark answer. I mean, that's a that's a hundred year effort, it would seem to me. And, you know, uh, you know, Bjorn Lomborg or his work, he's at Hoover. Uh, or, yeah, he's fantastic. Right. You know, Bjorn talks about growth and innovation as two solutions to carbon emissions. I mean, we didn't we didn't know about the fracking revolution. I mean, it had been hanging around for a long time, and then it was put to work in the last 20 years uh, developing uh, natural gas. Natural gas was kind of an offshoot. They were looking for oil, and they found all this natural gas. They had so much of it, they didn't know what to do with it. Uh, the price was negative at some part, some points in the, in the um, Permian Basin. But, I mean, why can't we figure out new technologies and innovations and inventions that will make uh, produce fuel and power uh, with lower carbon emissions. I mean, wouldn't that be more sensible? And it doesn't take 100 years. It can take 10 or 20 years. Uh, Look at the history. You know, it's certainly not going to be led by the government. It was only a little while ago that they thought corn, ethanol, and switchgrass was going to be the answer to all our problems. Haven't heard a lot about those lately, have you? Mm. Uh, No. fracking, Fracking and natural gas was entirely a discovery of the private sector. Uh, hobbled at every way from the regulators, banned still in Europe, uh, which would have cut their carbon emissions tremendously. And nuclear power, uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has not certified a single new nuclear plant since 1975. Mm. Wow. Wow. (laughs) We could start building that kind of stuff really quick right now and get us a lot of of carbon-free energy. I mean, I I know a lot of smart guys who think that – to expand the power base over time, we should have an all all the above strategy. Point number one. But point number two, um, natural gas and nuclear will be the backbones of uh, of our power in the next fifty to hundred years. Natural gas yeah. and nuclear. 
And, you know, the left is starting to notice this. You know, for example, you can't get permits to do anything in the U.S. Even the New York Times has noticed, wait a minute, we can't use hydro, we can't use geothermal, we can't use uh, – because you can't put in the transmission lines. You know, you need to reform the the horrible permitting that stops us from building anything in the U.S. And there's there's more, you know, residential zoning. You never think of that as a power thing. But if you let people build houses near or where they work, they don't have to commute commute so much. Hmm. Have you followed this just the last 24, 48 hours, um, this joint task force inside NATO where, you know, the United States is going to provide, I guess, initially 15 billion cubic meters of LNG to Europe. But it's not at all clear that the U.S. regulators are going to you know, permit a real push into uh, natural gas. Uh, exactly. You need, you know, you need the infrastructure. You need to have built, have allowed it to be built, <laughs> the ports where natural gas, liquefied natural gas can go. And it would be a lot easier if Europe had allowed their own frackers to develop their own natural gas industry and just dig it out of the ground. So the, these are, are, are good signs of sanity uh, slowly uh, awakening. But don't count on this to help fight the war against Russia in the next three weeks or get through this cold winter. In, in Europe, those mm-hmm. those kind of big structural changes take a couple of years. Uh, but at least let's let's be optimistic that uh, <laughs> the, the signs of change are coming. Uh, people do see the need for natural gas in the medium term uh, to to to, uh, to get through this uh, the, this transition period. Do you, John, do you think FERC will will modify or pull back because their initial proposed rule would have ended pipelines forever? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it is uh, a little bit um, the, the Biden administration's first act was to ban the Keystone Pipeline. And, and now we're going to Venezuela, Iran, and uh, assorted people to ask them to turn on the ta- and Saudi Arabia to ask them to turn on the taps. Kind of sad. Uh, they seem to be starting uh, to step back and, and think twice about their rules against uh, all, all pipelines and all oil and gas development. You know, we'll see how long that lasts. Uh, we, we tend to change the news cycle fairly soon. And so once the hot part of the war is over, let's hope that the sanity stays with us. Uh, John, stay with me. I've got to take a quick break. I want to come back on the other side and talk to you about inflation and the Federal Reserve's actions. Yeah, good stuff. John Cochran is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. His blog is The Grumpy Economist. Got to read the blog, folks. It's very, very good on target. Uh, I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. We will be right back with uh, Dr. Cochran. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with John Cochran, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and author of the blog, The Grumpy Economist. He's not really grumpy, folks. He's got a good sense of humor, but he does cut to the heart of a lot of key issues. John, so the Federal Reserve rhetorically in its communications sounds like it's going to be much more aggressive in stopping inflation even even confessing to their sins of allowing inflation to get out of the box in the first place it wasn't temporary or transitory it looks pretty permanent to me and then they go ahead and raise the fed funds rate by one quarter of one percentage point with an 8% CPI and whatever, a 6% deflate, a PCE deflator, 
and they're still buying bonds and injecting cash into the economy. So, John, you got to help me here. I, I, don't, I don't really get it. I, I, I don't see. I mean, it's going to take a year or two for this to have an impact. I don't see that they really started fighting inflation. No, I guess it's the same as our earlier conversation. A little bit of uh, a little bit of wake up, and but a long way to go. Uh, as you said, if you have eight percent inflation, one uh, percent interest rate is still seven percent into negative territory. Mm. It's not going to do much good on the inflation. Now, the Fed still believes it's all going to go away on its own. Uh, they don't use the word transitory. What are they doing here, guys? Well, they look at their forecasts, say it's going to go mostly down all on its own, so they won't have to do a whole lot. These are the same forecasts that were wrong dramatically in the past. They don't use the word transitory anymore, but that's still the way they're thinking about it. So they think, you know, a percent or two is going to be enough. To their credit, you're starting to also hear, well, maybe if it stays bad, we're going to have to do more. So, so listen to more of that in the future. But this is very, very slow to the party. This is slower than even the responses in the 1970s. Uh, so we'll, mm-hmm. we'll see. The Fed is starting to wake up. Yes, the slumbering giant has opened an eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> John, what are the chances that it's mostly going to go down on its own? <laughs> well, it's hard to forecast, especially the future, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'm when I look at it, as I look at it, I, I don't think uh, it's going to go down on its own uh, by the end of the year. The fundamental force here is, is in my view, the enormous amount of uh, money and, and debt created and showered uh, on the country in the last couple of years. Uh, that's still there. Deficit spending still there. Loose monetary policy is still there. Um, no great news on supply. We're in a war. And kind of the mechanics of inflation are still going on. Uh, it takes a while for higher prices to turn into higher wages. It, uh, as, as, uh, you know, it takes a while for higher house prices to turn into higher rents. So I'm, I'm cautiously betting that we're still going to have uh, inflation at the end of the year. Now, of course, I'm trying to sell a book about inflation, which comes out in the fall. So <laughs> I have a little oh. bit of... Uh, I have a little bit of a, of a, of a reason to hope, but unfortunately for everybody else. Yeah, but, you know, I'm, they're still buying mortgage-backed bonds. Uh, by some measures, home prices are rising by 20%, and they're still buying mortgage-backed bonds. I mean, I, I just think that's an outrage. They're still buying treasury bonds, for that matter, which is also outrageous. But mortgages, really? Is that what we need? Does that market need uh, stimulus? Uh, well, I think uh, somebody who uh, wants a mortgage and hasn't gotten one yet, uh, but, you know, get it fast because interest rates are not going down, everybody. <laughs> How high do you so think rates are going to have to go? A little bit of stimulus and such. No. Uh, now, on the other hand, uh, I don't think that stuff made a whole lot of difference on the way up, so I don't think it's going to make a whole lot of difference in the other direction. Uh, but the Fed to be buying, to be intervening in any market, you know, we talked about the whole of government energy. Uh, mm-hmm. What is the Fed deciding that mortgages need subsidies, but businesses don't need subsidies? Right. Huh. right. Get out uh, of that market, guys. Right. That's a good point. That's an important point. Um, how, you know, Jay Powell, I guess, talked to the Washington business economists uh, earlier this past week and then did a, a Q&A with reporters and so forth and compared himself to Paul Volcker or said he wanted to be like Paul Volcker. I knew Paul Volcker uh, and and remember the early 80s. Um, Real interest rates were very, very, very high, way above the inflation rate. 
Right now, they're way below the inflation rate. And I thought it was kind of a joke that he was talking about Paul Volcker because there's Fed shows no intent of, of doing the kind of things Volcker did. Uh, and that's, you know, what has kept inflation so low, I think. It's, it's sort of like uh, there's a nuclear weapon in the arsenal. Everybody believes that if it should get really bad, the Fed would repeat the 1980s. Uh, I'm not sure there's reason to have that belief. If in, so, folks, think of it for yourself. If inflation gets stays to 8 9 10%, will the Fed really raise interest rates if it hit 15 20% of the 1980s? Leave them there for a couple of years, go yes. through a couple of bruising recessions. Uh, will our Fed do it? Will our Congress let our right. Fed do it? John uh, Cochran. Hard question. John Cochran is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Uh, his blog is called The Grumpy Economist, and he's got a new book out. We learned that this morning. Thank you, John. Really appreciate it very much. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, Congressman Lee Zeldin running successfully for governor of New York. He'll come to visit for a little while. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We welcome to the show Congressman Lee Zeldin from New York, running for governor of New York. Uh, Lee is also an Army Reserve colonel. First of all, Lee, thank you for some time this morning. I know you're a busy guy. Hey, it's great to be with you, Larry. So I want to I want to get to the race for governor, but I want to. You're a foreign policy expert, also, and I want to ask you: Were you satisfied with? Uh, President Biden and this NATO conference, this so-called emergency conference that just took place. And and, and I'll just give you my, my I'm very frustrated. It doesn't sound like uh, it doesn't sound like Biden really wants the Ukraine to win this war. We're slow walking weapons. We're not giving him what he wants. Uh, we're not cracking down on sanctions or even secondary sanctions, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, how do you see this whole story? I mean, I haven't been satisfied with any of this. I believe that if President Trump was in office right now, Vladimir Putin wouldn't have even invaded Ukraine. Putting that aside, you know this. You saw it firsthand. You know the importance of words when you're the president of the United States. When President Biden green-lighted a a minor incursion, even though the White House sought to quickly clean that up, damage was done over in Russia. Kamala Harris goes on to the world stage – Words matter. She's the vice president. Uh, yesterday, you have President Biden and talking to troops and causing confusion as he discusses when those troops enter Ukraine. So that that's been an issue. You mentioned sanctions. If you're trying to deter, and that's one of the reasons why uh, sanctions get used. The the threat of sanctions before Putin's decision to go into Ukraine were weak. There was no deterrent effect, obviously proven by the fact that Putin ends up going in. There's been some increase in the amount of uh, support with hardware provided uh, to Ukraine since Putin has gone in. A lot of that's coming too late. Uh, We have clearly on one side a country that is fighting for freedom, fighting for its own existence. Unlike Ghani in Afghanistan, Zelensky stays. Uh, It was uh, gut-wrenching to see us spend the six-month mark of fleeing our embassy in Kabul by fleeing our embassy in Kiev. This is an illegal and illegitimate act, uh, and we need to be strong, consistent, and effective on our side. And it's for the purpose 
of being able to successfully de-escalate, and instead, the lack of leadership, we've only seen escalation. You know, Lee Zeldin, talk about what Trump would have done. Uh, we have sanctioned Putin himself, along with the other oligarchs, and Putin has been stealing from the Russian people uh, for three decades while he's been in various offices. So he's got a $700 million yacht sitting off the coast of Italy. I think Donald Trump would have already seized that yacht. In fact, uh, on on our Fox Business show last night, Katie Bavlick said not only would Trump have seized it, he'd have gone, flown over there and stood on the yacht and seized it and probably renamed it. I mean, Putin is a kleptomaniac. He's completely corrupt. He's stolen money for years. He may be worth a couple of hundred billion dollars, and he's got a luxury yacht while his country suffers. I mean, why isn't Biden making a narrative of Putin the crook, not just the war criminal, which is awful enough, and he has to go to The Hague for international court, but just Putin as, as, as a corrupt criminal who's been stealing from his own people? Well, first off, I have some thoughts of uh, President Biden, the Biden family having their own issues and selling access and personally profiting, uh, which aren't uh, all unrelated to what we're discussing here. I actually going even one step further than what uh, I am listening to you say, and and I agree with when you talk about uh, the actions that President Trump would be taking. I actually believe that he... Well, this is one of the other reasons why Putin wouldn't have went to Ukraine. I don't think that Trump would have even had to uh, seize the yacht because the threat of him doing it. Like President Trump would be able to talk about it, and it would have been believable, and it would have been public, and it also would have been private, and it would have been it would have been done convincingly. Right now, the, the, our adversaries are smelling weakness and opportunity. I mean, we do scouting reports on all of these leaders of other countries. We, we know that Kim Jong-un is known to be suicidal, not homicidal, we, which uh, normally applies to most of these leaders of these foreign countries. They do that without, with us, too. And not only are they sensing weakness on the part of President Biden, but they see it with those who are around him. I mean, Anthony Blinken thinks – that the threat of a strongly worded letter from him on State Department uh, letterhead is going to instill fear into his counterpart, Lavrov. Mm. Uh, so th- there's so many issues here. But you know, to your point about the yacht, I actually think that just President Trump talking about doing it would be enough of a deterrent. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's intimidated by Putin. I really do. I don't think he's, I think you know. he's intimidated by the job. You're right. He's intimidated by Putin. Uh, I think he's intimidated by Chi. Uh, I think that it, his administration is showing an intimidation to Rouhani uh, and the Iranian regime. Uh, we saw them intimidated by the Taliban. Uh, and I think they're just in over their heads with the job. And I, I hate to say it. I, I'm a proud American. We live in the greatest country in the history of the world. I want our president to be successful no matter who it is, whenever that person's in the job. But right now, he is in over his head. Uh, Lee Zeldin, let me turn to the race here in New York, the governor's race here in New York. A recent McLaughlin poll shows that you can beat uh, Governor Hochul. You're running roughly even with her, maybe even a little ahead if the split is correct. 
what's the biggest issue here in this governor's race? Right now, number one, I'm hearing crime and public safety, but I'm also hearing from voters of all walks of life, Republican, Democrat, conservative to liberal in between. They're talking about wanting to feel safe on the streets, but they're also talking about the unaffordability of living here, uh, the attacks on wallets taking its toll. We're hearing from people who care about their son and daughter's education, uh, the restrictive freedoms, uh, the the COVID mandates that came down. I mean, Kathy Hochul, who's Andrew Cuomo 2.0, has some of his very worst traits in her. And she thinks that New Yorkers want an emperor governor. When she was calling for people to get the COVID shot, she was calling on New Yorkers to be her apostles. She referred to herself a couple weeks ago as the mother of all 62 counties. Public service is about serving the public. And these people who are in power think that this is about being served by the public. So people just want to, you know, they're heading to other states. We lead the whole country in population loss between our taxes being too high. Uh, people feel like their money will go further. They'll feel safer and they'll live life free or somewhere else. If the elections today, we win. And as we see, as each day goes by, the climate only gets better. The issues are more favorably on our side. And we're working hard, taking nothing for granted. I am not in this race to come in second. Hmm. Bail, bail repeal. I mean, no bail, no jail. Governor Zeldin, what would you do? Yeah, I mean, the, the bails, the, this cashless bail law is so screwed up and it needs to go. And uh, judges should have discretion to weigh dangerousness and flight risk and past criminal record and seriousness of the offense on, on all these offenses. And unfortunately, because of this law, people are going out committing additional crimes. Sometimes it's resulted even in the loss of life. Someone gets released on an arson charge, and then they get rearrested on a double manslaughter in Yonkers. Uh, it happened in Syracuse. A Connie Torrey, a 93-year-old, was murdered by somebody released on cashless bail. Banks, they get robbed. And then you release someone, and they go out and they go rob the same bank. They go out and rob other banks the same day. Uh, so it's been proven now. You need data. We have the data. We have the stats, but these are also lives and families. Uh, cashless bail needs to go. It's the wrong answer. We have a better way of doing this. And would a Governor Zeldin have pushed for the Amazon headquarters in New York City, which would have created, I don't know, tens of thousands of jobs? Yeah, they're talk Amazon was talking about 25,000 good-paying jobs coming to Queens. And because of AOC and her friends, all intimidating and pushing out Amazon. All of these jobs end up going elsewhere. It's a lost opportunity. I mean, we see it in New York where we are filled with opportunities, sitting on the Marcellus and Utica shale to mm. be able to safely extract our own natural gas. Let's greenlight these pipeline applications, suspend the gas tax, provide people real long-term relief. Think about the jobs that would be created, the revenue that would be generated the fear-mongering that gets used against this safe extraction, the proof is in these other states sitting on the same resource, the same shell, all safely tapping into it with a great success and prosperity for their towns, for their states. There is so much opportunity in New York that's getting lost. And as part of this over $220 billion state budget that's getting finalized, up in Albany right now by three persons in a the room. They're including all sorts of far-left proposals, like, for example, right now what's in it, banning all gas hookups on new construction for the entire state of New York. Hmm. There's so much garbage that they're adding into these spending bills that are basically daring people to flee New York.
you know, if we if we had gone if if we went towards energy development, that would give a booster shot to all of upstate New York, wouldn't it? I mean, that place has been suffering for many many years. Seems to me, energy would be a terrific way to rejuvenate the upstate economy. Hundred percent. You go into Binghamton and Broome County, and mm. you know, go visit Binghamton Plaza where. You have, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 straight empty storefronts. It's all over the place. You know, there used to be uh, healthy, vibrant businesses and economies, and people are, are leaving. It would be billions of dollars for that county in Elmira, which is in Chemung County, the whole southern tier of New York. Marcellus and Utica Shells are named after New York towns. Marcellus, mm-hmm. Utica, these are New York-based uh, towns that these were named after, and there's this ban that Andrew Cuomo, who wanted to become president, played along with getting uh, signed up on. You know, and, and, you, when you play this out, like the Williams Pipeline that would have been delivering natural gas in and through New York, when Jamani Williams and Bill de Blasio and AOC and their friends all killed the Williams Pipeline, then National Grid and Con Ed say that you can't, ban, you can't hook up any new construction to gas. And then the New York City Council ends up legislating it and making it the law that you can't hook up to gas, uh, and now they want to do it statewide. But the ramifications of not greenlighting these pipelines, safely extracting into these resources, it's just lost opportunity. And these people have to look across their border in the southern tier of New York and see in Pennsylvania they are safely tapping into this, and those communities are prospering, and people have jobs, and the energy costs are lower. This is – it's absurd. This is common sense to fix. It's like the old East and West Berlin. <laughs> That's what it's really like. Anyway, um, one last one, Lee Zeldin. Uh, critical race theory in New York schools. I, I believe that we shouldn't have critical race theory or whatever else the Democrats want to call it that pits one student against another based on – race and who they are these kids were getting along just fine until these kids uh, the, the teachers came in with their agenda and, and now they're pitting kids against each other and on top of it we have sex education material inside of these classrooms that aren't age appropriate either we have a fundamental right for parents to control the upbringing of their child we need parents to be able to be as involved as possible they should encourage to be as involved as possible we need kids to have access to a quality education and that means school choice uh we should lift the cap on charter schools tax credits and and educational savings accounts and more because kids stuck in multi-generational poverty are being held back by those who are leading the teachers unions and the far left and ultimately the kids who don't have a vote they're the ones who suffer the most all right that's great good congressman lee zeldin thanks for giving us your time good luck on the campaign trail Thank you, Larry. Great to be with you. Okay, thanks very much. All right, folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk to Judy Shelton, famed economist. Why does Vladimir Putin fear financial ruin? Not his, mind you, but Russia's in general. And uh, what about the inflation problem here in the USA? I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with Judy Shelton. Larry Kudlow.
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Uh, we welcome to the show a great friend, Judy Shelton, senior fellow at the Independent Institute, former uh, Trump economic advisor. Thank you, Judy. And I'm so sorry we didn't have enough time for you last night on the show. I really apologize. <laughs> no problem, Larry. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, no, it's great. So you wrote this great op-ed piece in the journal. Um, Vladimir Putin is so concerned about defaulting on their bonds. Uh, the Russian government devalued its currency, defaulted on its domestic debt, and declared a moratorium on payment to foreign creditors. This was a while back. You're saying now that he's got more respect for the rules of international finance than he does for the rules of war. So... Judy, he made his payments, uh, whatever it was, $114 million on some bonds. But, you know, thought occurs to me, uh, Putin could help it all by himself if he'd stop stealing all this money from Russia. I mean, the guy is a kleptomaniac. He's totally corrupt. He's got a $700 million yacht sitting off the coast of Italy. He's been ripping off the energy and gas budget for years. He could just pay this stuff out of his own pocket. Well, you're you're right about all of that. And um, his nemesis politically, uh, Alexei Navalny, has been pointing that out. He calls him a, a crook and a thief. And Navalny just this last week was given another nine more years in prison after oh. he had been um, poisoned by mm. by Putin earlier. So a uh, hundred million people have viewed Navalny's documentary on Putin's palace and showing the unbelievable. That's that's why I say, I mean, Putin is not Russia. He is a totalitarian, and I'm no psychiatrist. But one thing I learned um, many decades ago in the 80s, as I was writing about the Soviet economy and the impact of Western capital on the Soviet economy, was how desperate they are to be seen as as following the rules of international finance. Putin associates defaulting on debt with national humiliation and economic ruin. And what I learned in in those years working on the Soviet economy when it was about to go bankrupt, uh, our strategic defense response to a country that has nukes that destroy us, that could destroy the world, with a try to figure out breakout points. When you stress that country to the point where its leader, who, who in this case, so Putin has died in paying off the sovereign debt, gets stressed into doing something irrational. I'm not saying be intimidated by Putin. I'm saying he's not worth it. He's not worth sacrificing a potentially great future. And we need to be aware of his capacity to escalate 
but that capacity may be diminished in the future. I mean, we haven't seen Shoigu or Gerasimov or his, um, the other people who would be involved in escalating. We do know that Putin, the day after the West launched what is called in the financial world as our own nuclear option, which was to freeze Russia's international reserves that they hold overseas in foreign currencies. It was the day after that that Putin uh, put the nuclear forces at a higher level. He moved up the DEFCON effectively. And I'm just saying, like Sun Tzu advised, know your enemy. We need to understand the psyche of this person and, um, and, and to know what a potent weapon it is to prevent Russia from paying its debt. Hmm. Well, Judy Sheldon, what will the impact be of freezing the um, Central Bank of Russia's foreign exchange reserves and in general sanctioning banks? Now, we haven't gone to a secondary sanction yet. Uh, I, I frankly would, I would support that. Senator Toomey uh, has been pushing for that. Uh, we've, I think we've cut off gold sales pretty much, maybe not entirely, but pretty much. But what will the ultimate impact be uh, on the Russian financial position and its economy? Oh, I think maximum pressure. And I agree with the secondary sanctions. That's really the only way that you can ensure that the efforts we make to cut off funding for Russia is carried out by associated banks, because if they can get it through secondary banks, then, then you really neutralize the impact of that sanction. We do want to put pressure on, and we do. We, we all see Ukraine. Ukraine is that, that thin margin of good over evil is defined by Ukraine's moral courage. So there's mm -hmm. no doubt about how we want this to end. But what I'm saying is you don't Oh, I think we lost you. I think, yeah, I think we'll we'll try to get her back on the phone. I, I'll just fill in and in the next minute while we try to get hold of Judy Shelton again. Um, I think that Biden has made a mistake not enforcing secondary sanctions on the Russian banks. Uh, we should be maximizing pressure. That would also maximize pressure on the Russian energy sector because there are still banks in Russia that are financing um, energy exports. And I and I, I think that would... All right, we got Judy back on. Uh, Judy, th th these sanctions are going to have an impact on quite some time, I would think. And I, I doubt if they're going to be lifted anytime soon. But Not while he's in power. Right. right. I think we are putting enough pressure. We saw him lash out at the oligarchs and call them scum and call mm -hmm. them traitors and to hint that the people who have villas in Miami mm -hmm. and um, and in southern France and who like oysters and foie gras, that they should be treated like um, like flies going into your mouth and spit them out. This <laughs> this is the guy who's against Nazis. And he talked about purifying the Russian race by eliminating these people who would question his judgment. This is the person we're dealing with. And I'm saying what we need to do is allow other things to be taking place so that he isn't the guy defining escalation on his terms. We don't want to be drawn in because we underestimate the impact I've 
of some of the things we're doing. If we if we allow Russia to keep paying down debt to Western creditors, that is money they're never going to see again. Those are right. dollars and euros that are gone forever. Let's take okay. all of those. Judy Shelton's senior fellow, Independent Institute. Thank you ever so much. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, some stock market work. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. You can join us during the week, Fox Business, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. And by the way, you can live stream us right here, LarryKudlowShow.com, all across the country, throughout the world, and the solar system. So let's do some stock market and economic work. Stocks, let's see. Stocks actually went up slightly this past week. Stocks, for all the turmoil going on with inflation and interest rates at home, and of course the war overseas and the high price of energy, stocks have not too bad. The Dow Jones, 34,861, was up 106 points. Almost all the inflation signals from interest rates are showing worse and worse inflation. We'll get to that in just a moment. Our two guests are Joe Labornia, former chief economist at the White House National Economic Council and is presently chief economist at Natixis Bank, and Kenny Polcari, managing partner at Case Capital Advisors, chief market strategist at Slate Stone Wealth. Gentlemen, Welcome. Let's talk a little bit about this situation. Um, Joe Laborne, I go to you. You're a bond guy. You know something about interest rates. The five-year break-evens, Joe Laborne. Before the Fed meeting, or no, at the time of the Fed meeting in March, where allegedly they became more aggressive, the five-year break-even forecast of future inflation was 3.42%. On Friday, it closed at 3.57%, up 15 basis points. And most other interest rates have increased. And the stock market has done fairly well. In fact, I think the stock market is not afraid of the Fed. In fact, Joe Lavornia, I don't think anybody's afraid of the Fed. Are you afraid of the Fed, Joe Lavornia? That's my question. I've- <laughs> Thank you, Larry. Good to hear your voice, Kenny. It's always a pleasure. This is all star, an all star conversation. The, uh, no, I am afraid of the Fed. Uh, the, uh, the the break even rate has gone up because inflation in the short term is running at seven percent, eight percent. It's going to go to nine percent, as you know, because of energy and of course food now. Uh, but I'm afraid of the Fed for two reasons. See. The uh, the five year five year inflation swap, which I which I know you you look at, it's sort of a esoteric series. That's only up about twenty basis points from where it was um, a year or so ago, and it's only around two sixty. So that's actually still pretty low. And the reason why it's low, Larry, is if you look at the yield curve, and you can look at the spread between the two and the ten year. Although I like to look at that spread in forward space. In other words, what's the market say that? two to 10 year spread is going to be in two years. And what you see is the market actually pricing a lot of tightening this year and then uh, easing in late 23, early 24. So the bond market is saying that the the economy is going to slow rapidly, which I agree with. And it's not unusual for the equity market, at least in the short term, kind of to look past things. And I, I get the sense the stock market right now is, is focused on the fact the Fed's going to control inflation, which is always very bad for equity valuations. But unfortunately, the Fed's going to overdo it. 
and we're going to be in a recession probably this year. Uh, maybe we're in one now, but it's going to happen. Interesting. So, um, Ken Pocari, I'll go to you, because contrary to my pal and my former advisor, Joel Avornia, uh, I don't think anybody's afraid of the Fed. I mean, I really enjoyed, I enjoyed it when uh, Jay Powell told reporters in Washington uh, Monday, at, last Monday, that um, he admires, he wants to be the Paul Volcker. He admires Paul Volcker. Now, I, I actually worked for Paul Volcker um, at the New York Fed long, long, long time ago. But I would say this, uh, the Fed funds rate is now uh, a quarter to a half. The inflation rate is eight. They're still buying bonds. <laughs> I mean, I know the Fed is in a brave new world, but their their quantitative easing continues at least until the May meeting. How that's possible, I don't know. And if you're talking about real interest rates, with an 8% inflation rate, you should probably have 10 12% Fed funds target. That's what Volcker did, by the way. I don't see Jay Powell right. doing any of that. And I think the stock market is snubbing its nose at the Fed. That's what I think. Listen, and I agree with you, and thanks for having me on. And I'm in so in Joe's camp, absolutely, because I think and, and I think they're way behind the eight ball. I don't think the market and investors – I also think some of this was short covering, right? I think people expected the market to go down even further, very volatile, not only with the crisis in, in Europe, but as well as uh, the crisis here, right? And when it didn't, there's this mad rush to cover the shorts, number one. But then there's this sense that, you know, we've broken trend lines, that technically we're doing better, and then the market starts to rally. I mean, look, we're almost back at the yearly highs. We're not that far away, honestly, right, Right. from the yearly highs with all this going on, like you said. But I think the market is snubbing its nose right now at the Fed, but I don't think it's going to snub its nose once. uh, You know, they're going to go 50 in May. They're going to go 50 again in June. And I think Goldman came out and said they expect further 50 point base, 50 basis point increases, not just the two, but they expect another one. So I don't think the market yet is paying attention. But I think when it starts to, when it realizes, like Joe said, I think there's also going to be a recession. I don't think we're in it yet. But I'm thinking towards the end of this year, maybe early next year. Does, at this point, does it really matter whether it's November or January? Not really. But the fact is, I think it's going to happen. And that's when I think the market's going to go, oh, <laughs> we completely missed this. Because I think Jay Powell and the Fed are well behind the ball. Yeah, I mean, look, all those 50s, you're right. They should have done 50 in March. In fact, they should have done they should 100 have done in January, in March. the way you first said it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's exactly, exactly right. Uh, you know, Jim Bullard at St. Louis wants him to do that. Um, what's his name, Joe? Uh, we put him on the Fed. Waller, Chris Waller, who was at St. Louis Bank, now is on the board. He He's hinting he wants to do that. But I don't hear it from these other guys. I mean, I hear dovishness from John Williams. Or the, those guys are still in denial about inflation. The, this Mary Daly of San Francisco, who's a real woke Fed president, uh, her, her own bank research department disagrees with her, and she's in denial about inflation. So, you know, I think if the Fed delivers these 50s, that would be more interesting and might give us a regime change of inflation expectations. I agree with you, Joe. We're in stagflation now. We're headed for recession probably next year. I agree with that. Could be later this year. But I got to see it to believe it. I got to see it to believe it, Joe Lavoria. Yeah, I mean, uh, Larry, this, the, thing, the reason the economy is not healthy, and it's not healthy because 
We've overregulated, which you've made this point many times. So we're, we're really killing the supply side of the economy. Uh, the high energy prices are a function, again, of more bad policy. Uh, potential GDP, which I'm not a huge fan of, but to the extent the economy can grow without inflation, whatever rate that is, is has been depressed. And we're doing things to continue to hurt growth. And, and that's I would focus more on the supply side than on the demand side. I mean, I'll give the Fed a little bit of a pass because – uh, I don't think a lot of this inflation is created by them. Don't I think the inflation it. has been created don't by do the. It, Joe. Well, don't give him a pass, Joe. Don't give him a pass. Well, well, no. Larry, say, so, well, don't give him a pass, Joe. Don't give him a well, pass. Well, let me say Joe. this. But, well, okay. Well, okay. <laughs> I won't give them full full uh, full blame. But I mean, Next the, thing you're going to give Biden. The, don't give Biden. No, a pass not at either, all, Joe. No, not at all. Well, this. But Larry, this is the whole thing. This is the. This is we. We, we had the V-shaped recovery yes. that began in May of 2020, and then in March yes. of 21, we decided to pass $2 trillion of stimulus, uh, beat, the, beat the oil companies over the head, and tell them not to invest in capital. And these wells take a long time to reopen. It's not as if you could just turn a switch on. And that we've created this problem. And I think this is what I'm saying. I think on the fiscal, regulatory, administrative side, I would blame the inflation prominently because of that. I'm not saying the Fed doesn't have a part. I just think that it's easy now to blame the Fed uh, and not realizing what everything happened beforehand to create this problem. Well, the Securities Securities Environment Commission is now cracking down on all kinds. They're telling companies how to run uh, based on on, on Green New Deal. And you're not going to create the capital formation, Larry, that creates the productivity that lifts the wages to improve the living standards. It's all interconnected. Yeah, Yeah, but Joe, I got to ask you a question. Don't you think that this was starting to be seen last summer in June, July, when everyone started talking about inflation and the Fed kept saying, no, 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 we're going to keep it where we are. We got it under control. Don't you think they should have started the 25 basis point gentle increases last summer because we wouldn't be where we are today if they had done that? Well, maybe, Kenny, but the thing is, you know, the economy was reopening and the administration started to push federal vaccine mandates and and the supply side of the economy could open up a lot Joe, more. You just, Joe, we were, you just said we were in a V-shaped recovery. The economy was booming, was oh, booming. Yeah. No, no, and inflation it, no. went from less than two to last summer was at five on its way to seven, on its right. way to eight and probably on its way to ten. Yeah, I'm no, with Larry. Right. <laughs> no, but, no but what I'm saying is, no, the, no it's I'm, good. We'll the have you back. Is very strong. <laughs> no, the economy was, was very strong last year. No question. That was a residual from 2021. The point is, is that we should we could have been reopening more. And the regulation certainly strangled, I think, both capital formation and the, the economy's ability to open up even more quickly to absorb and obviate some of these supply disruptions, which persisted longer than they had to. But, 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 uh, weekly unemployment claims are at record low, and the labor market is very tight. You can't ignore that. In terms of this recession, uh, I think the data is very mixed on this. Consumer confidence, Michigan consumer sentiment is way down. Uh, A third of the people... Uh, expect financial conditions to get worse. But jobless claims are really, really low. And well, I Larry, think that I... you're going to get a good, pretty good jobs number. Yeah. Uh, is the jobs come out this Friday? Is that what the next jobs number is? Uh, next week. The uh, week yeah. after this coming one. All right. But I mean, this week is this week. Yeah, you're I right. think no, it's going to be a, 
I think the jobs number is going to be pretty strong, four or 500,000. Yeah. Can I just – I just want to say one thing on the late – go ahead, Kenny. I want to just make one point. Please go ahead. No, I was going to say, and that's just going to continue that conversation about wage price uh, – wage spiral inflation because yeah. the job market's going to be strong. Wages are going to be forced to go up because inflation is so strong, and we're going to go right back to 1979, 1980. That's what we're going to do. Yeah, well, that's the risk. Larry, I, I don't, you know, I, I have a problem with the labor market being tight. I think the labor market is broken. Uh, labor force participation is still very low. Employment to population ratio is still very low. This 4%, sub 4% economy, labor market rather, is not what it was back prior to 2021 when the labor market was tight, it was healthy. So, I mean, yes, it looks healthier than, you know, maybe than. It looks okay. I just I think it's more. Yeah, but look, nobody's. Real yeah, but what that tells you is nobody's getting fired, and the Jolts reports tells you, Kenny, that no, uh, there are not enough people to hire. I mean, that's a tight market. Nobody's getting fired anymore. Continuing claims are so low, uh, and you know they took away the unemployment benefits. Finally, uh, that probably stifled. But people, you know, the, the question is, labor is scarce. Labor is scarce, and. Um, that's why I don't think a recession is imminent. I got to tell you something. I don't know about you guys, but I have seen recently more people announcing on LinkedIn, I got a new job. I got a new job. I got a new job. They're all very excited about all these new jobs yeah. and they're making more money. I, like that's an indicator that no one's paying attention to. I've seen more people, you know, uh, hit LinkedIn. This is my new job. Look what I'm doing. I think it's, and so to Larry's point, um, you know, the labor market is tight and there's no one's getting fired. People are, 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 are moving jobs for better opportunity, for more money. Jay Powell is the Joe Biden of monetary policy. Biden, Biden is intimidated by Putin, and Powell is intimidated by everything. I mean, really, his rhetoric should be so much tougher. His actions should be... Sh I mean, come on. If stocks were worried about a bunch of 50s, they wouldn't be rallying like this. Now, like Kenny said, stocks may be in for a rude awakening. That's an interesting point. In fact, let's take a break right here and come back about that, whether stocks are headed for a rude awakening. Joe Lavornia is the chief economist at Nataxis, Ken Paul Carey at Case Capital Advisors and Slatestone Wealth. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with our lively discussion. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Joe Lavornia, former chief economist at the White House National Economic Council and presently chief economist at Natixis Bank. Kenny Polcari, managing partner at Case Capital Advisors, chief market strategist at Slate Stone Wealth. Kenny, let's pick up where we, where we left off. Um, you know, I always believe, personally, stocks in the long run do very, very well. You're sort of betting on America. I also believe the cavalry is coming this November. So all these crazy policies of overtaxing and overregulating and uh, overspending will, I don't know if they'll go away, but they'll be muted, that's for sure. But in the short run, uh, the stock market may be headed for a problem if the Fed is tougher than people think. Would you expand on that thesis? 
Right. So I think right now the market the market is giving him uh, is giving to to Joe's point a pass. Right. They think that Jay can control it. What I think and like you think, I think, is that uh, is that he's behind the eight ball and he's going to have to get very aggressive. And when that really starts to happen is when investors and the market is going to realize that rates going to go up faster than expected. Valuations have to come down at that point. The economy is going to start to slow. So there's going to be a number of inputs that have to change, which is going to change the answer. And the answer is going to be slower growth and, and lower valuations. And that's going to make the market adjust. Now, it's not a reason to light your hair on fire and run out the door. It's a reason to take advantage of the opportunity, because in the long term, I agree with you. Stocks are a great place to be. You have to have the right names. You have the right portfolio. But they are a great place to be. Joe? Uh, look, I'm not going to argue with the long term. That That's true. It, of course, depends how long the long term is. I mean, it could be 10, 15, 20, 20 plus years, as there's been a lot of history of the market being flat for a long time. Uh, current policy doesn't give me a whole lot of faith that um, equities are attractive at the moment. As Kenny mentioned, yields are going up. That means valuations should compress. We're probably going to see an earnings recession because these energy costs, Larry, combined with the food, I mean, together that's over 20% of household discretionary, non-discretionary spending. They're essentials. Uh, We're going to have a profits recession in my mind. And I would argue if you look at the stock market, look at the consumer cyclicals, look at the outperformance of consumer staples, if you uh, look at the – the, the auto sector, I mean, there are a lot of pockets of the equity market that are really flashing yellow. And by the way, it's not uncommon for the stock market to peak uh, just before the onset of a downturn. The lead time isn't particularly great. So I don't think even though we're only about five or six percent from the all time highs, that still doesn't tell me it's an all clear. I mean, if the situation in Europe is rectified and energy and inflation comes down more significantly than I thought, the Trump tax cuts are made permanent. Yeah, I mean, a lot of things could happen. It's unlikely, though, unfortunately. Right. right. You, still have, you still have, though, it's interesting to me, uh, profits are so important. Profits are the mother's milk of stocks. They seem to be holding up at the moment. Now, what will oil do to that? What will food do to that? I, I don't know that I know uh, all the answers. But I want to go back to the yield curve. Uh, it's twos to tens are very flat. But the... Yield curve model of forecasting the economy, which was pioneered at the New York Fed, uh, I think one of the other Feds just picked it up, the San Francisco Fed maybe, that measurement was three-month T-bill to the 10-year note. And that's still very steep. I mean, the three-month T-bill is 50 basis points. The 10-year is 2.5%. That's very wide. And the Fed is still in a quantitative easing mode. The money supply is still growing rapidly. The monetary base balance sheet and the money supply is still growing rapidly. And as I said before, unemployment claims are at rock bottom. I'm just throwing these out because I think there's a lot of gloom coming. Kenny, I I don't believe in soft landings from a 10% inflation rate. I don't believe in that. Neither do I. You know, that's it's like a second marriage. It's a triumph of hope right. over experience. But I, 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 I think the day of reckoning is still out there, uh, you know, six, nine, maybe even 12 months. That's kind of where I'm at. 
Yeah, and I think so, because I think we're going to hit that recession later, whether it's, like I said, later this year or early next year at this point. What difference does it make? But I agree with you. I don't see how he can engineer a soft landing. I know they got everybody on his side of the fence telling everyone it's a soft, it's going to be soft, it's going to be soft. I don't see it. And, you know, you and I lived it. We all lived, all three of us lived it uh, back in, you know, late 70s, uh, late 70s, early 80s. So um, it's going to be now, very Joe interesting. Is, to see Joe was still in grade school then. <laughs> how... Uh, <laughs> how they try to engineer this. But I don't think they're going to be able to engineer it, and that's my point. And right now the market investors are believing that he can, but I think they're going to be surprised when he can. Yeah, yeah I think you're Joe, what do you think? You're going to, you're going to give the stock market a pass? No, I'm not. No, I mean, look, I hear the point about M2, and the reason the Fed's balance sheet is growing is because it takes a few weeks to settle the mortgage securities. Those are yeah. all great points, but credit is not trading well. Dollar's very strong. I need a change in macro policy on the fiscal side, Larry, for me to be upbeat. I just don't have it at the moment. Fair enough. Thank you, gentlemen. Great stuff. Joe Lavornia and Ken Polcari. Appreciate it. I'm Kudlow. Stick around. Money and politics on the other side of the break. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. And please join us during the week on Fox Business. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. Let's talk some money in politics. We have Monica Crowley, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, and launching Monday, drumroll, Monica Crowley Podcast. Launching yeah. Monday. I guess I didn't make the cut for the launch, but whatever. <laughs> Steve Moore, Vice President of Freedom Works Committee to Unleash Prosperity. His new book is called Govzilla, How the Relentless Growth of Government is Devouring Our Economy and Our Freedoms. Monica, uh, your launch of your podcast coincides with your nomination as um, Donald Trump's vice presidential running mate. This according, <laughs> this, according to page six, it was the top story yesterday. There's my friend, Monica, as vice president. So, Monica, um, are you available for the vice presidency? Well, I am completely available for the vice presidency. <laughs> and should should President Trump call, I will serve. So there you go. Uh, I was completely shocked. When I got this call about this story, it's complete news to me. There have been no discussions, have not been approached whatsoever. But as you all know, I was Donald Trump's first supporter in the media, and I remain one of his strongest supporters, uh, certainly in the media. But I I believe in him, body and soul, and 1,000%. So uh, I am launching this podcast on Monday. And both of you gentlemen will be guests on the podcast once we get rolling. (laughs) So, Monica, um, uh, if asked, you will serve. Is that the idea? (laughs) Well, very difficult to say no to Donald Trump. Very difficult to say no to the former president of the United States, who is likely to be the next president of the United States. But let me just say, I was completely shocked and stunned by all of this. Steve Moore, is Donald Trump going to be the next president of the United States? 
he very very well may be. You know, we had a dinner up in Florida um, last about a week or two ago. I think, Monica, you might have been at that dinner. And we went around the table, and these were, you know, 35 major uh, players, political players in um, in Florida. And it was really interesting. We went around the room and asked, who, who do you want to be uh, the Republican nominee for president? And it was uh, Larry equally divided between Donald Trump and uh, Ron DeSantis. And so I think that's kind of where the Republican Party is right now. There's a kind of equal division. I think they're both superstars. So we will see. Let me just say one other thing, if I may. Mike Pence was a great vice president, yeah. a great, great vice president. Yep. He was. And um, he's going to make a good run for president. There's no two ways yeah. about that. Along with DeSantis, I would guess, uh, there'll probably be others poking around. I, I don't know. It's kind of early in the game. I don't think you can really tell until after the midterms. I mean, I would vote for a ticket with Monica Crowley on it. There's no question about that. She, <laughs> I could, she might be she might be asked by other people, for all we know. Well, well you know, the other really hard. interesting thing. What, can I make one other quick point? You know that, that as we as Republicans kind of struggle with who who we're going to nominate. Who in the world are the Democrats nominate right. for president? You know, the, what's very funny is right now there's a little boomlet for Gavin Newsom of California. And anybody oh. who's following what's happening in California right now where they're paying $7 a gallon for gasoline, uh, yeah, he's, he's the real man of the people. So uh, I, I love our chances against any of, uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg or <laughs> Newsom or Kamala Harris or Joe Biden. You know, my candidate, uh, Monica, for Democratic president is Joe Manchin. Yeah. I, I want Manchin to run in a primary against Biden or how, or whoever. I mean, I just think that would be the most fun old style. I don't agree with him on everything. I certainly agree with his tough stands on social spending and workfare and um, deficit spending and so forth. I mean, that would really make it an interesting race. If Manchin threw his hat well, in the ring. Well, let's not give them any good ideas, Larry. Um, <laughs> and it, it would be it would be a move for the Democrats to try to get back to the centrist politics of like the Bill Clinton era. The problem is that the Democrats, I don't think, would ever nominate a guy like Joe Manchin because all of the energy and activism are on the far left. So the far left will will not allow that to happen, I don't think. Well, Look, the Democrats have a huge problem, Larry and Steve, because number one, the invalid who's in the White House currently can't make another three months, never mind another three years. <laughs> so let, let's just stipulate that he's likely not to be the nominee. Well, then their default is the sitting vice president, who happens to be the most unpopular vice president in the history of the country. Mm-hmm. She's an absolute disaster. And uh, nobody will support her. However, she is a woman of color. And for the Democrats, the most devoted, hardcore constituency is black women, women of color. So if they are going to diss Kamala Harris and, and not nominate her, remove her somehow from the calculation, they've got to square that circle and fix that problem. And as I said, said at CPAC, the logical way to solve that problem is to nominate Michelle Obama. If they nominate Michelle Obama, we are in a very difficult position because Michelle is very popular and she's immune to criticism 
And by the way, she has followed the exact trajectory of Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama in terms of writing an autobiography, giving the Democratic keynote address at the DNC convention. She has followed the playbook. So mark my words, if they turn to her, we're going to be in a real fix come 2024, even though the Democrats have made such a catastrophe over these last couple of years. I'm for AOC. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I'm for AOC. I second the nomination. <laughs> I, yeah, I just think that would be so fabulous. Uh, Michelle Obama's not going to run for president. She's not going to run for president. I don't. I don't believe it. That's all. I just don't believe it. I hope me, you're right, Larry. Let me follow uh, Steve Moore on the invalid point, though. Um, Joe Biden's performance at NATO, at this emergency NATO conference, is, is just so bad. Incoherent, bewildered. He won't strike out. He call, I guess today, I'm reading in the, on reports online, he called uh, Putin a butcher, okay? Yesterday or the day before. Wait, he, he, called, called, he, called, he called him what? He called him a butcher. But... What he should what he should be doing is calling him a war criminal constantly. Right. He should be saying that no matter what happens, he's going to be brought to The Hague, the international court. And furthermore, he should seize Putin's seven hundred million dollar yacht, which is sitting off the coast of Italy. Just seize the yacht. Trump would have gone in and held a press conference on the yacht and 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 broadcasting because in addition to being a war criminal, he's a crook. Putin is a crook. Mm-hmm. He has stolen hundreds of billions of dollars from Russian working people. And for the life of me, I don't know why the Biden crowd, I mean, I think they're intimidated by Putin. I don't think the Biden crowd, I don't know why they've not gone after this business of all the money that Putin has stolen. How can a guy in public service for whatever, three decades, he's held all these government jobs, have a $700 million yacht? I mean, what are they waiting for? Well, well, how how is it that uh, that uh, Joe Biden has all these houses? <laughs> He's been in politics for fifty years himself. Um, well, I'm going to get to that uh, in a minute. Uh, but look, I mean, here's my thinking about this. I, I just think the NATO leaders, you know, are are feckless, and mm. I I just do not understand why they are so terrified of Putin. Now, by uh, Joe, I'm sorry, uh, Donald Trump warned the Europeans. You were probably there at those meetings, Larry. He warned them about not getting hooked on Russian oil and gas. Right. And they did. They ignored him. They laughed at him. And now they're paying a heavy price for that. Um, it's, it's very frustrating. And you're right. I, I don't understand why there isn't a tougher position. I love the fact that they finally said, hey, you know what? Instead of getting the natural gas from, uh, from Russia, why doesn't it come from the United States? Gee, what a what a concept. <laughs> of course, you know, Biden shut that all down when he became president. And that's, I think, one of the things that was the trigger for this invasion in the first place is that I we agree. made Russia an energy superpower. I agree. I mean, I can't tell you how many meetings with uh, these foreign leaders, especially the European leaders, uh, bilats at the G7 or the G20 or the U.N., lunches in the cabinet room with the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would, we would talk about energy and he would just look at me, you know, with his eyes and just say, go. And I would make my pitch <laughs> for LNG exports. Okay. I was uh, the biggest LNG export yeah. salesman. I did it yeah. free of any commissions and mm-hmm. it just, they wouldn't listen. I'm, and, mm-hmm. and by the way, I would point out the numbers on this uh, because of the glut of natural gas in the Permian basin, 
where prices were roughly zero for not gas. Zero. That's what the cost mm -hmm. was. We had these energy companies, ExxonMobil and others, telling us that they could ship stuff over there for $6. $6, okay? Mm -hmm. Russia's mm -hmm. 9 or $10. So ours is cleaner and cheaper, and they would not listen, which, you know, Monica, that is really one of the reasons that Europe is in the fix it's in. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, look, and, and Steve mentioned how Donald Trump was warning the Germans and others about their dependence on Russian energy supplies. But we go back to 1981, and your, your former boss, Larry, Ronald Reagan, he was warning back then, 40 years ago, the Europeans do not get so closely tied to Russia, you're going to regret it someday. And yet they felt, well, the proximity of the Russian oil supplies, natural gas supplies to us makes it a lot easier. Plus, we sort of want to stick it to the United States and American superpower, so we'll go with this other source and so on. If you start trying to make logical sense out of any of this, you're going to bang your head against the wall. It's not really a about that. It's more about bigger agendas that have long been at play and continue to be at play. For example, you know, Steve was talking about we have all of these incredible energy supplies right here at home. Why are we not getting them out of the ground and onto not just our market, but the global market? Well, the reason is the, the top line reason is because the left talks about climate change, concern about the environment. That's not the real reason, although they have some concern about those things. The real reason is because energy is the biggest lever that the left can use to remake the American economy and remake the global economy. And they're attacking other things, too, small business and, and other industries. But energy is the biggest of them all. That's why they're attacking it, because they want sort of this one world global system that's based more on Marxism than economic liberty. And yeah, I just have one thing to that, uh, Larry, which, yeah. and I think I made this point on your show this week uh, or the week prior. If, if we wanted to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions, the single biggest step that could be taken on the planet to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is to move all oil and gas production to the United States because that would substantially reduce pollution. We have by, you know this, Larry, we have by far the most stringent environmental regulations. Mm -hmm. So when we, when we stop producing here and then move the production to Saudi Arabia, to Venezuela, to Russia, to Iran, that's the, that, that is what's actually increasing the pollution levels. So even if you're a green, you should be opposed to reducing American oil and gas production. And incidentally, the United States has reduced our uh, greenhouse gas emissions more than any other country over the last five years because of natural gas. Somebody explain to me why the left greenies are against natural gas. Well, by the way, uh, all that is true. And our natural gas is, is the cleanest. Russia yeah. has very dirty natural yeah. gas. Uh, yep, ours yeah. is by far the cleanest. And our um, coal, Larry, and our coal is the cleanest as well. Yes. Well, I guess that's coal's got a little ways to go. No, but I mean, when you when you compare our coal versus oh, to other coal coals. That's produced in China and in these other countries, right. you know, we have by far the cleanest coal. All right, let's take a quick break. We got uh, Monica Crowley, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. Her Monica Crowley podcast begins on Monday. Steve and I were not invited, 
and Steve Moore of FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity. And his book is Godzilla, How the Relentless Growth of Government is Devouring Our Economy and Our Freedom. I'm Larry Kudlow. Take a quick break and come back. I want to talk about uh, Joe Biden's little tin box. We'll be right back after this. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking money and politics with Monica Crowley, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, and her new podcast, The Monica Crowley Podcast, launches Monday. And Steve Moore from FreedomWorks and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Um, Kids, there was a great... um, People of a certain age will remember a fabulous Broadway show years ago called Fiorello. And one of the great songs in Fiorello, I, I'm going to read it. I did sing it on the Cubbo show. <laughs> yeah, sing it. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna, Mr. X, may we ask you a question? It's amazing, is it not, that the city pays you slightly less than 50 bucks a week, yet you purchased a private yacht. And <laughs> I am positive, Your Honor, must be joking. Any working man can do what I have done. For a month or two, I simply gave up smoking, and I put my extra pennies one by one into a little tin box, a little tin box that a little tin key unlocks. Now, that (laughs) applies to Vladimir Putin, who has stolen and plundered Russian money for 30 years. However, Monica Crowley, I will go to you. The Hunter Biden computer laptop story is alive and well. New York Times finally acknowledged it. Now nobody wants to talk about it, but I want to talk about it. And we talked about it on the show, on the on the Fox Business Show a lot this week. He got 30, you know, Hunter Biden got $31 million from Chinese investment funds. He was involved in Ukrainian funds. He was involved in Russian funds. We don't know whether he is divested. And mindful that the, quote, the big guy got 10%, the big guy being Joe Biden, now the president. We don't know how much Joe Biden got, when he got it, because the laptop covers 2010 to 2017, which is right when he was vice president. And we don't know whether, Monica, whether he's still getting payments from his little tin box. And I think this is a big question that requires a lot more investigative reporting. Yeah, you know, there's a difference between champagne socialists like Bernie Sanders, who talks a good line about Marxism but has three homes, and the difference between that and pure corruption. And what you're describing, Larry, looks to be pure corruption. The fact now that you have the president of the United States who looks to be completely compromised with the Chinese, the Russians, and the Ukrainians, our top three engaged adversaries or or, uh, foreign policy uh, problems in front of the president is an outrageous crippling of the United States of America. Joe Biden is probably the most blackmailable person on the planet. His son, Hunter, is probably the second most blackmailable person on the planet. The idea now that the commander-in-chief, who has now got the United States in the middle of the Russia-Ukraine intra-Slav conflict, but he is compromised on both scores and crippled because they have paid him so much money over the years, 
is an outrageous problem for the United States. The fact that Biden is still there is also unconscionable. He should be impeached and removed immediately because this is not just about him and his corrupt, dark money and those interests. We've got to figure out where all this money came from. I think if the Republicans gain control of Congress and have subpoena power, Elise Stefanik said today they intend to subpoena Hunter Biden. They've got to go down this dark rabbit hole, discover where all of this money is coming from, what special interests and foreign interests are involved, how that has compromised the president and his team in dealing with America's interests abroad. It's got to happen sooner rather than later. And if it shows that he is compromised and or has committed crimes, the president's got to go. You know, Steve, uh, polls show that roughly 10% of those who voted for Biden, had they known and taken seriously and read about it, would have switched their vote to Trump. And that's why this is an election issue. Now, Lee Stefanik told me, I guess it was on the Thursday Fox Business show, that they were geared up, if they win the House, to hold hearings about this. Uh, I think that Republican senators should be talking about the same thing. This is a big issue in the middle of a war. And here he is negotiating, you know, he's talking to Xi. Nobody really knows what that conversation was. Uh, of course, he's dealing with Russia, dealing with Ukraine. In all three cases, he was involved in, um, in money, okay? It's money politics mm-hmm. in its worst yep. form, Steve Moore. And this is gonna be a big issue. It is. And there's a couple of elements of this story that I think are really important in addition to what Monica was saying. First, the media covered this up. The media covered the story up. And the New York Times, you know, when they came out with their story, what was it, a week or two ago, saying, hey, you know what, this is actually legitimate. That was a reversal of what they had been saying during the election. You know, they said that this was a, a, Mm -hmm. you know, another Republican conspiracy story. Um, Number two, how about these 50 former intelligence officers who all signed a statement right before the election saying that this was phony. Uh, None of them, I don't think, by the way, that reveals a lot. Number one, that the deep state is real. It is real. It's not a figment of our imagination. Number two, none of them have recanted their statements now. Mm -hmm. Um, I just find that to be horrific. We've been running in our uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity hotline every Monday uh, one of the emails. Peter Schweitzer sends us one every week, Mm -hmm. and they are so damning, and there's so much indictment there. And the fact that the media completely swept this under the rug and that the State Department and CIA officials did the same, that's scary. And none other than former Attorney General Bill Barr came out and said this past week that Biden lied. He was asked, he called it Russian disinformation. We know that's not true. And no one is holding Biden accountable to that. They're trying to whitewash everything in the White House press room. All right, we're going to have to get out. Monica Crowley, thank you. Good luck on the podcast. Steve Moore, thank you. We'll see you both during the week uh, on Cudlow, Fox Business. And folks, I'll be back next weekend. All right, good fun. Thanks.
Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L. On Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.